Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the program. In this episode, we're going to finish off the respondent's brief in opposition to petition for a writ of mandamus or a writ of prohibition. So, let's dive in. Part 5. Argument. The non-dissemination order does not violate the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Petitioners, a coalition of media outlets, argue that the court below exceeded its authority in issuing a limited non-dissemination order. This case is still daily front-page news months after the homicides. The trial participants, against whom the order is directed, have not objected to the restraining order. Indeed, in a strong display of unanimity on the issue, both the prosecutor and the defense counsel explicitly requested the non-dissemination order to preserve the right of the defendant and the state to a fair trial under the Sixth Amendment. Although the non-dissemination order is not directed to the petitioners, they object to its indirect impact, alleging that the order's effect constitutes an unlawful prior restraint of their speech. They ask this court to grant them the extraordinary remedy of a writ of mandamus or prohibition, directing the lower court to vacate its order. The press demands unfettered, immediate, and direct access to all sources of information concerning the case asserting that anything less violates their rights under the First Amendment. This is incorrect. The petitioners claim that the lower's court order is a prior restraint on them and that strict scrutiny should apply. P-E-T-B-R dot at seven. But as explained below, the order does nothing to restrain these petitioners. Strict scrutiny is therefore inappropriate. The correct standard should instead be whether the restrictions imposed are reasonable and whether the interests of the government override the very limited incidental effects of the order on First Amendment rights. Radio and Television News Association versus U.S. District Court 781 F.2D 1443 1447 9th Circuit 1986 Citation Omitted. The petitioner's argument, in contrast, would sacrifice the Sixth Amendment fundamental right to a fair trial on the altar of the First Amendment and ignore the common sense balancing between these rights that the lower court applied. 1. Courts must vigilantly protect the Sixth Amendment right to a fair trial. The Sixth Amendment guarantees criminal defendants a right to trial by an impartial jury. Skilling v. United States, 561, U.S., 358, 377, 2010. 
It has long been recognized that adverse publicity can endanger the ability of a defendant to receive a fair trial. Gannett Company versus DePasqual, 443, U.S., 368, 378, 99, Supreme Court, 2898, 2904, 1979. To safeguard the due process rights of the accused, the Supreme Court has held that trial judges have an affirmative constitutional duty to minimize the effects of prejudicial pretrial publicity, ID. And because of the Constitution's pervasive concern for these due process rights, a trial judge may surely take protective measures, even when they are not strictly inescapably necessary. The Supreme Court has acknowledged that the stage of the criminal process matters and has recognized a distinction between measures effective in the pretrial phase versus the actual trial. As petitioners have pointed out, once a trial begins, courts have for dire, they can sequester a jury, a change of venue, and other tools to help ensure a fair trial. The court has noted that the danger of publicity concerning pretrial suppression hearings is particularly acute. Because it may be difficult to measure with any degree of certainty the effects of such publicity on the fairness of the trial, Gannett Company versus DePasqual, 443, U.S. 368, 378, 99, Supreme Court, 2898, 2905, 1979. That poses special risks of fairness, stating that closure of pretrial proceedings can be necessary to help ensure fairness of a trial. Just as publicity concerning the proceedings at a pretrial hearing can influence public opinion against a defendant and inform potential jurors of inculpatory information wholly inadmissible at the actual trial, so too can prejudicial pretrial publicity generally. A prerequisite to a fair trial is the ability to select an impartial jury untainted by prejudicial pretrial publicity. This court should do what it can to prevent the spread of prejudicial information throughout the community before the trial. Where the case is notorious, like this case, the burden on the court is heavy. Farr versus Pitches, 522, F.2D, 464, 468, 9th Circuit, 1975. The Supreme Court has found that most practical and recommended procedure to ensure against dissemination of prejudicial information is what the lower court did here. It entered an order directing that attorneys, court personnel, enforcement officers, and witnesses refrain from releasing any information which might interfere with the right of the defendant to a fair trial. Shepard v. Maxwell, 384, U.S. 333, 86, Supreme Court, 1507, 1966. The order at issue is more narrowly focused than the scope of the order suggested by the Shepard Court and does not extend to the witnesses, only to their attorneys. Number two, the non-dissemination order is not a prior restraint against the petitioners. The court has described a prior restraint as an administrative or judicial order forbidding certain communications when issued in advance of the time the communications are to occur, finding that court orders that actually forbid speech activities are classic examples of prior restraints. Hall v. State, 151, 
Idaho 4246253 P.3D 716-720-2011, citing Alexander v. United States 509, U.S. 544-550-1993. The non-dissemination order is not addressed to the petitioners. It imposes no form of restraint on them. The order applies exclusively to the trial participants identified in the court's order and as to only certain categories of statements. Restraints on statements of participants in a criminal trial, although indirectly denying media access to those participants, do not infringe on the freedom of the press under the First Amendment. Radio and Television News Association versus U.S. District Court, 781 F.2D 1443, 1444, 9th Circuit, 1986. Radio and television news is particularly instructive. There, the district court issued an order restraining defense counsel from making statements to the media concerning the criminal trial of his client, a former FBI special agent accused of leaking secrets to the Soviets. The order was upheld. Six subject matter categories were proscribed by the lower court. At 1444 FN.1, these subject matter categories are found in the non-dissemination order before this court. The media and radio and television news filed a petition for a writ of mandamus to compel the district court to vacate its order as an unconstitutional prior restraint, infringing the freedom of the press. The media argued that denial of access to the trial participants constituted an unconstitutional restraint on their ability to gather news. This argument is identical to the argument advanced today. The Ninth Circuit Court found that in radio and television news significantly different from the one denying the media access to a criminal trial or restricting it from publishing information it obtains. ID at 1446. The court noted it had invalidated as unconstitutional prior restraints on reporting the news and other restraints that barred the media's access to criminal proceedings. But much like the case at hand, There was not the situation in radio and television news. In contrast, the district court's order, in this case, is not directed towards the press at all. On the contrary, the media is free to attend all the trial proceedings before the district court and to report anything that happens. In fact, the press remains free to direct questions at trial counsel. Trial counsel simply may not be free to answer. In some, the media's right to gather news and disseminate it to the public has not been restrained. In short, the media's collateral interest in interviewing trial participants is outside the scope of the First Amendment. The Second Circuit has also held there is substantial difference between a restraining order directed against the press and an order directed solely against trial participants and challenged only by the press holding this distinction critical to its analysis in RE application of Dow Jones Company 842F.2D603609-1988. The Dow Jones Court found a fundamental difference between a gag order challenged by the individual gagged and one restrained by a third party. An order objected to by the former is properly characterized as a prior restraint. One opposed solely by the latter is not. But see CBS versus Young, 522, F.2D, 234, 239, 6th Circuit, 1975. 
where the court found a restraining order in a civil suit arising from the aftermath of the Kent State shootings, a prior restraint. In CBS, the court issued a sweepingly broad order that prevented all parties and their relatives, close friends and associates from speaking about the case. CBS illustrates why the press trial participant distinction matters. In its rejection of the approach of the Sixth Circuit in CBS, the Second Circuit recognized the significance of the fact that the party restrained had requested the non-dissemination order, just like here in the Koberger case. Orders imposing restrictions on attorneys, parties, and witnesses are entitled to considerably more defense than a prior restraint on the press. In RET.R, 52 Ohio State, dot 3D6, 21, 556, N.E, 2D, 439, 1990. Recognizing that orders imposed upon parties and their counsel are considered a less restrictive alternative to restrictions imposed directly on the media. Petitions provide the court with nine anecdotes to illustrate the impact of the non-dissemination order on them. PET at 3 and 4, PET, BR dot at 2 and 3. A quick review of these one-sentence sketches underscores that the press has not been restrained. The majority of the anecdotes are misplaced. They concern parties not subject to the court's order. Three of the examples relate to public records, the availability of which is not restrained by the order. Two examples relate to individuals to whom the order does not apply, the victim's families and the mayor of the city of Moscow. Four examples concern the speech of law enforcement who are covered by the non-dissemination order. Assuming these illustrations are accurate, the indirect impact of the non-dissemination order on the press is not a restraint on their speech. Restrictions directed against the media, such as bans prohibiting the media from publishing information it has gathered, are virtually always found to be unconstitutional prior restraints. Nebraska Press Association v. Stewart, 427 U.S., 539-1976. Here, rather than impose a prior restraint on the press, the lower court instead chose a much less draconian alternative and narrowly focused its non-dissemination order on the trial participants. Further still, rather than impose a general non-comment rule on the participants in the trial, in particular, only three of the nine illustrations cite to any verifiable facts. A pending motion in the district court a complaint filed by a Washington state agency in Whitman County, and a press release from the Moscow Police Department, see Olson, exhibits D, E, and F. And other anecdotes are unsubstantiated unless the court considers the generalized verifications attached to the petition sufficient to support these allegations of harm. 4. The language of the order is unambiguous. The court cannot control how third parties outside the judicial proceedings decide to interpret the order or whether they attribute to it a sweeping application that is not supported by language or terms. The real possibility exists that some third parties would prefer not to communicate with the media regarding the criminal case and the non-dissemination order gives them their own justification not to do so which has no bearing on the actual scope of the order directed only to the attorneys for the trial participants and the agents of the prosecuting attorneys and defense. Subject matter of statements concerning the case, they must avoid discussing with the media. This is precisely what the Supreme Court instructs trial courts to do. 
In Shepard, the Supreme Court found that rather than restraining the press itself, the court should have considered less restrictive measures, such as prescribing extrajudicial statements by any lawyer, party, witness, or court official. ID at 1521. The court found that might well have prevented the bedlam that occurred in the trial of that case. The Ninth Circuit also acknowledged that the notorious criminal cases, the trial judge was a heavy duty and obligation to attempt to protect the right of the defendants to a fair trial, free of adverse publicity. And it believes that the most practical and recommended procedure to ensure against dissemination of prejudicial information is the entry of an order directing the attorneys, court personnel, enforcement officers, and witnesses to refrain from releasing any information which might interfere with the right to the defendant to have a fair trial. Farr versus Pitches, 522, F.2D, 464, 468, 9th Circuit, 1975, citing Shepard versus Maxwell, 384, U.S., 333, 1966. Back in Philadelphia, I got... Likewise, 10 years after Shepard in Nebraska, Press Association versus Stewart, 427, U.S., 539, 564, 1967, the Supreme Court explicitly endorsed imposing a restriction on communications of trial participants when necessary to avoid excessive or prejudicial pretrial publicity as an alternative to restraining the press. Petitioners request that the court adopt a strict scrutiny standard to the court's non-dissemination order and treat the ban on the trial participants as if it were the prior restraint on the press. A prior restraint standard is set forth in Nebraska. Press Association is a virtual ban on prior restraint of speech. Were the court to do so, it would result in the prohibition of all restraints on both the press and the trial participants. This, in turn, would allow the court no flexibility in responding to pretrial publicity that threatens the right to a fair trial. The court should steer clear of the imprudent approach advanced by the petitioners. 3. The petitioner's constitutionality protected right to information is no greater than the public's right. In Richmond Newspapers Incorporated versus Virginia, 448 U.S. 555, 576, 100 Supreme Court, 2814, 1980, the Supreme Court affirmed the First Amendment right of access or right to gather information granted to the media regarding criminal trials. The court described the right, however, as only a right to sit, listen, watch, and report. The Supreme Court has held that the press has no greater right to information about a trial than the general public. Nixon versus Warner Communications Incorporated, 435 U.S., 589, 609, 98 Supreme Court, 1306, 1978. In short, the media's right to gather information during a criminal trial is the right to attend the trial and report on it. It does not have an unstrained right to gather information. The News J Corp. versus Foxman, 939 F.2D, 1499, 1512, 11th Circuit, 1999. See also Sioux Falls Argus Leader versus Miller, 610 N.W.2D, 76, South Dakota, 2000. Gag order on trial participants did not violate media's First Amendment rights. KPNX Broadcasting Company vs. Superior Court, 139, Arizona, 246-678, P.2D, 431, 439-42, 1984. Limitations on the media's ability to interview trial participants did not violate the First Amendment. See also Pell vs. Proconeer, 
417 U.S. 817-829-3594, Supreme Court 2800-1974. Freedom of press was not infringed by government restrictions on interviews with prison inmates, rejecting the media's argument of right of access to the sources of what it regarded as newsworthy information. The petitioners have no constitutionally protected right to communicate with the trial participants. As aptly noted in radio and television news, trial counsel are free to refuse interviews by the media, regardless of whether there is a court order prohibiting media contact. When that occurs, the media has no recourse under the First Amendment to compel their speech so that they can gather the news. Number four, the court has no duty to make explicit factually findings or hold a hearing before issuing a non-dissemination order. The court's non-dissemination order itself explains that the court was balancing competing constitutional concerns when it issued its order and stated it was necessary to curtail some information in the case. The court cites to the three seminal Supreme Court cases that guide the non-dissemination order, Shepard, Nebraska Press, and Gentile. The court acted well within the bounds of those cases. The court cites to IRPC Rule 3.6, which the court reviewed carefully and incorporated factors from Comment 5 of the rule into its order. The court also cites to the ABA Standards for Criminal Justice, Fair Trial and Public Disclosure, 4th Edition 2016, in support of its authority to limit some of the speech of the trial participants. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. T-Mobile 5G Home Internet. The court had a discussion in chambers with all counsel representing trial participants to discuss its original order. That discussion was memorialized by the counsel for the prosecution and the defense, as in the public record. See Ferguson, Example A. The joint memorandum of the prosecution and defense further explains the court's belief that the order was necessary and reveals that the court referenced factual findings to support it. For example, the judge noted the high-profile nature of the case and the fact that the case has garnered national and international attention. Petitioners take offense that the court did not hold a hearing for the purpose of providing them an opportunity to object to the non-dissemination order, but they are not party to the case. There is no need to have a hearing on an uncontested matter the parties have stipulated to and then present to the court. While the Supreme Court held that specific findings must be made in order for a court to close a preliminary hearing to the public under press, enter company versus Superior Court of California for Riverside County, 478 U.S. 11106, Supreme Court 2735-2737-1986, there is no similar requirement of specific findings for non-dissemination orders. Other state Supreme Courts have found that a hearing on non-dissemination order is unnecessary when both the state and the defense agree that the order is appropriate in the case. State versus Great, 164 Ohio State, 3D, 920, 172, N.E., 3D, 832 Ohio, 2020. This makes sense. 
Attorneys in judicial proceedings have lesser First Amendment rights than the public generally. This court has found that it is well established that attorneys acting as advocates in judicial proceedings do not enjoy the same First Amendment protections as the general public, both due to their membership in a specialized profession and their status as officers of the court. Hall v. State, 151, Idaho, 4247, 253, P.3D, 716-721-2011, citing Gentile, 501, U.S., 1030, 1066. Membership in the bar is a privilege burdened with conditions. The non-dissemination order is aimed primarily at the attorneys in the case as trial participants who represent the parties to the case, as well as the attorneys for the witnesses and the victims. The order extends to others who act in concert with the attorneys involved in the case, such as investigators, law enforcement, and other agents of the attorneys, and prohibits certain extrajudicial statements. As the court reminded counsel in the case during its conference to review the details of the order, the attorneys participating in this case are also bound by an ethical code of conduct, separate and apart from its order. Rule 3.6 of the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct restricts the extrajudicial statements of lawyers who are participating in litigation. Lawyers can be subject to discipline if they disregard this rule and make extrajudicial statements prohibited by Rule 3.6. The court was well within its authority to order the attorneys participating in the case and those who act in concert with them to refrain from extrajudicial prohibited speech. Further, an attorney's ethical obligations to refrain from making prejudicial comments during a pending case exists regardless of a non-dissemination order. B. The non-dissemination order does not violate Idaho's Constitution. Petitioners are correct that the court need not treat Idaho Constitution in lockstep with the United States Constitution. The Constitutions are distinct and are interpreted as such. Reclaim Idaho v. Denny, 169, Idaho, 406, 443, 497, P.3D, 160-197-2021. Idaho's Constitution does not contain the same limitations as the U.S. Constitution, and the state is free to set its own standing requirements, Stanger J. specially concurring. However, there is nothing in Article 1, Section 9 of the Idaho Constitution which provides a person may publish on all subjects. That supports the petitioners. Claim that they have a constitutional right to communications with trial participants and the court cannot restrict trial participants' extrajudicial communications. The obvious point bears repeating. There is absolutely nothing in the non-dissemination order that prohibits petitioners from publishing on all subjects they deem fit. Petitioners cite no case law in support of this novel theory under the Idaho Constitution. C. The petitioners lack standing to assert First Amendment rights of trial participants. This court has historically looked to the Supreme Court for guidance on issues of standing. Reclaim Idaho v. Denny, 169, Idaho, 406, 418, 497, P.3D, 160-172, 2021. The Supreme Court has held that a party has no standing to assert the rights of third parties. Duke Power Company v. Carolina, Study Group, Incorporated, 438, U.S. 5980, 1978, Worth v. Selden, 422, U.S. 490, 499, 1975. The press stands in no special relationship with the trial participants to assert their First Amendment rights. Here, none of the trial participants whose speech has been curtailed under the non-dissemination order have joined this action. 
To the contrary, the primary trial participants, the prosecutor and defense counsel, jointly stipulated to the order on behalf of their respective clients. Just as the Ninth Circuit found Radio Television News 781 F.2D at 1448, the petitioners lack standing to assert the free speech, constitutional rights of non-parties in challenging the court's non-dissemination order. Part 6. The Conclusion The court below did not commit clear error when it issued a non-dissemination order applicable to the trial participants as requested by the parties to protect the right to a fair and impartial trial under the Sixth Amendment. Free speech and fair trial are two of the most cherished policies of our civilization. Bridges v. State of California, 314, U.S. 252, 260-62, Supreme Court, 192-1941. The court below has the difficult task of balancing these fundamental rights and has reasonably done so in issuing the non-dissemination order. The press is not restrained by the non-dissemination order. Accordingly, the court should deny petitioner's request for an extraordinary writ. And this was signed by Deborah Ferguson, and Craig H. Durham. Well, folks, there you have it. The second part and the conclusion of the respondent's brief in opposition to petition for a writ of mandamus or a writ of prohibition. All of the information that goes with the episode can be found in the description box. Judy, happy 